Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by GCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about new tech and jewelry, Tiffany's men's engagement rings, and U.S. sanctions on Burma. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Other than like having my head explode from 90-minute-long Zoom sessions today about really interesting topics, but after 90 minutes, you kind of lose the plot. Yeah. Can we vaccinate against uh, too many Zooms? <laughs> yeah, I've reached her. I think we've all reached her community with the Zooms. Yes, the Zoom pandemic. I know. I, I think things are starting to creep back into the real world in person sphere. And I'm here for it. I'm really I am, you know, great for like international events that you could never attend or things that you just need yeah. to scribble some notes from because you just want to listen in. But yeah, my head's reach maximum capacity with zoom chats it's it's a weird way to like a lot of the times like people will just do it instead of a phone call and why, why can't we just do a simple phone call that like you have to do a zoom with all this other stuff i agree with you it is a really pertinent question like i feel like every ceo interview i've done where i would have normally had a phone call they always insist on zoom and i'm like it's 8 a.m here in la i've got bedhead Trust me, it's been a year. I've never really figured out like a great background or a great way to handle the whole thing. You know, it's supposed to be a segue into the topic I want to discuss, but part of it is that, of course, we're living our lives so much more digitally than we ever have. And I think there's this ongoing conversation about, is the future going to be primarily digital? Will we exist digitally? I think there are all kinds of people who think, yes, you know, that that will happen. I explored some of these topics and these ideas and how they sort of intersect with the jewelry industry for an article that ran, God, was it like a couple of weeks ago, late April in the New York Times? And the headline was kind of catchy. It was, technology could turn you into a Tiffany. Now, I don't write the headlines. I need to make clear um, all the copy editors and the editorial team at the Times, and I think for most newspapers, they write the headlines. They have to fit the space. They have to, you know, do their sort of catchy teaser bit. So I didn't write the headline, but I did write the story and I did, you know, do all the research that that involved. It was a tremendous amount of research. And I really approached the topic. The topic was how is the high jewelry industry? And my focus really was on luxury, luxury, like the Boucherons and the Tiffany's and the other high-end jewelers of the world and where, what kinds of cutting edge technology they're employing in order to both make and sell their jewelry. And you may not be surprised at this, but very few high jewelers agreed to speak with me. You know, I reached out to Van Cleef and Cartier, Pomelado, and and nobody, I mean, they didn't come out and say, we don't want to talk about the topic, but they just sort of avoided it and said, no, I'm sorry, you know, we're busy. We don't have somebody who can answer those questions. Boucheron's CEO, I'm going to butcher her name, Helene Polite-Duquesne, you know, an interesting woman based in Paris, runs this century plus old Maison that does incredible jewelry, really high-end stuff, and has for, for all these decades. And she was the only one that was really comfortable speaking to me about things like artificial intelligence and the fact that they're using algorithms in some cases to create pieces that really wouldn't be possible without those mathematical formulas. 
Um, she talked to me about 3D scanning and 3D printing. And I talked to a lot of other people, including um, Steven Adler. A lot of those in this jewelry world will know he is a really sort of a known quantity on the technology side. He's been at all those Santa Fe symposiums that Rio Grande ran. He he runs a company called AD3M. I hope I got that right. So he is somebody that's very familiar to the trade, but super well, well-versed on things like polymers and composites and like the material science that is advancing at the same time that things like software and, you know, 3D printers are going and sort of the collision between high jewelry and mass jewelry and the democratization of jewelry. What I found in the research for this story was that the future really is democratized access to things that used to be only available to people like the Medici's or the Sultan of Brunei. I mean, we've all, there's always existed an ability to order a piece of jewelry that's custom made to you, that uses fine materials and arrives at your door and it's something very special for you. But that was only really accessible to people who were very, very wealthy and very well connected. And the future is that there will be platforms that allow people to go online, that you will be able to come up with an idea for some piece of jewelry that you want that is hyper, hyper personal. In the article, I use the example of a couple who might want to buy a necklace to commemorate the birth of their daughter. And they want the diamonds on the necklace to be in the same pattern as the stars on the night she was born. That's very cute. It is. It's touching and it's so personal. And it's not that far away. And eventually, I mean, most people, 3D printing's not in any way a new concept for jewelry. I mean, virtually every jeweler I think out there uses it, certainly every mass jeweler, to create molds and resin or wax. Then they cast those things in the traditional casting process into precious metal. But, you know, not that far away because it's out there. It's just not very, um, it's not super accessible in terms of pricing or, you know, you'll be able to print those things directly in metal. And these elaborate designs that 3D printing allows, and you'll have it shipped within five days. So it's all kind of daunting and a little bit unnerving for people who are used to the more traditional forms of craftsmanship this industry has always championed. I mean, it's one of the only industries that I can think of that really highlights and celebrates the fact that we're still using ancient techniques. And by ancient, I really truly mean like ancient Greek and Etruscan. And can you think of another industry that's so proud of being so antiquated? <laughs> no, <laughs> it is. It's definitely uh, unique. And so it was really interesting to dive into this article. And one of the more mind blowing aspects of it, I covered towards the end. And it was this conversation about what happens when we do exist primarily in a digital realm. And maybe that means things like avatars and sort of digital skins. But it was this prospect of buying jewelry that only exists digitally, that only you know, along the lines of what we're seeing in this NFT non-fungible token mania that a lot of you have probably read about, art NFTs where art is bought and sold as these non-fungible tokens. Now, have you heard much about this? Like, Rob, what do you know about NFTs? Um, I have read like two articles and which I didn't understand. So if you can guide me through it, that'd be great. I mean, I'm going to try because it, it's sort of mind-bending stuff when you haven't really spent much time in it. Fungible things are things that are easily exchanged and, and have no uh, difference between them. So dollar bills, for example. Non-fungible are entirely unique, one-of-a-kind pieces. And so I guess what's happened is there's a marketplace 
It's all driven by cryptocurrency. I believe Ethereum, the hot cryptocurrency at the moment. But you can buy art now. You can buy real estate. You can buy watches and jewelry. Again, that only exists as this sort of unique work whose sale is minted on a digital ledger. So the blockchain keeps all of this. And there's basically encryption that includes records indicating who created it, who owns it, and proof of authenticity. Would this be something that you would only use for an investment? Because if you have an NFT for a piece of art, wouldn't you want to have it? Do people actually buy art because they like art and enjoy it? I think there's that, but I think plenty of people buy art and have it sitting in, you know, a vault somewhere because they know it's their precious investment. So it is a question. I mean, the whole thing takes some getting used to. I mean, there was a fascinating New York Times story where the writer made his column an NFT and actually sold it for some insane amount. And it was like, but this column exists on the web. Everybody can access it. But somebody felt like owning that as an NFT was in some way valuable and could be traded because every time you do sell an NFT, the original maker of it does get some sort of portion of that sale. So for artists, it makes sense because think about it. If you sell a painting to somebody, if that person then ends up selling your painting to another person, the original artist doesn't get a cut of that. But with NFTs, they do. So there are NFT diamonds out there right now. And in fact, I think the site is nftdiamonds.com where you can buy these diamonds. They claim to be priced based on the carat weight of what they would fetch in in the real world. And I I can't speak to why somebody would want to buy those. But I think the idea is that one day, maybe we'll all be living in digital realms. We'll all have avatars. We might want to actually wear jewelry on those avatars, but clearly it'll need to be only digital. And, you know, it accomplishes the same thing that jewelry in the real world does. It shows status. It shows your style. It gives some sense of who you are and, and what your power is. So getting back to what you were discussing before, I think it's interesting that the high luxury brands didn't want to speak about this because I think that's a lot of what they sell, right? Is this kind of this craftsmanship. And this hand craftsmanship. And I think there there still is, I mean, Etsy sells tons of products. And I think the reason why people like a lot of that stuff is because it is handmade and it is personal. So I think it makes sense in a way that these kind of high-end brands are a little skittish about this kind of stuff because they really try to make you believe that every piece is handmade by their expert craftsmen and some guy working in a workshop all by himself. And I think they don't necessarily want to spoil that. And I think there always will be, or perhaps I hope there will be a market for that kind of product. I mean, I think there will be. And the Boucheron CEO was very explicit about, you know, technology does not replace human hands. It only enhances or gives us options. And by the way, Tiffany did speak to me and was very, very open. And I did quote them about in 2018, they opened a whole jewelry design and innovation workshop around their corner from their headquarters in Manhattan, where they are employing all of these things, investigating all of the material science and all of the technology and hardware and software that, you know, is at the very cutting edge. So I think the thing about the other jewelers is, of course, they're using these things. So it's a little disingenuous to put forth this idea of old world craftsmanship when they all 100% have people out there looking at the latest 3D printers and the latest, you know, chemical kind of products and things. 
I understand why it is exactly what you said. I think we're all a little scared of technology. And I think sort of the knee-jerk reaction is that the soul of a piece of jewelry, you know, that a piece created by a machine doesn't have that. I think we'll start to revisit that and maybe acknowledge that, you know, people have always used tools. Tools have always been part of the jewelry making experience. And if this is just another tool, then why do we need to approach it so negatively? Because I do think that that exists out there. That's why this industry has long celebrated and championed that ancient way of doing things. I think both will coexist, but I think that hyper-personalization that we see it now. We see this obsession with personalized jewelry, whether it's something as simple as an engraving or, you know, a really entirely bespoke piece. And just for anybody who's going to tune in in a, you know, sometime in the near future, we do have somebody coming on that will speak to this in a much more specific way. So do stay tuned for more conversations about 3D printing and, you know, mass personalization. What's interesting to me is that you know, when I was younger, I wanted to get engaged at that time. And you would go to like three local jewelers. There'd be three local jewelers in every town. This is before I lived in New York. And, you know, they would give you a very, very limited range of options. You know, like it would all be diamond engagement rings, right? And it would typically be the same kind of style of diamond engagement rings. I think one of the challenges the industry has, and, you know, this just goes beyond jewelry, is now you can basically buy anything. So if you can buy anything, you're going to want something that's more personal. So true. So true. And it's only going to get more true. There is another reason we wanted to talk about Tiffany on this on today's mm -hmm. episode. So it was about a week ago. Was it last week where they announced Diamond Engagement Rings for Men, a new collection? You wrote the piece. What what did you make of them? Or what did it feel like a surprise? Or was this, uh... you know, obviously, they're not the first people to offer it. Plenty of people offer it. I mean, I've written articles about it for a decade. You know, the kind of larger trend of being gender neutral, of gay marriage. I mean, I think the, all those things are going to accelerate, right? So, you, you know, it, it is something that I think a lot of people see huge potential in. You know, there are cultures where men and women both get engagement rings. It's not, you know, it's American thing that just a woman gets it. But, you know, there are certain cultures where both sexes get it. And one of the interesting things I've found in my research is prior to World War II, men did not get wedding rings. There was something called the Jewelry Industry Publicity Council, which I guess does not exist anymore, but it was kind of one of these... Uh, industry associations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a big thing like, oh, here's a dual ring ceremony. And I think Humphrey Bogart was one of the first, like, he's got a dual ring with both the man and the female getting a wedding ring. And now it's, of course, extremely common. So uh, we'll have to see. I mean, it's an interesting idea and it, it depends on how they market it, but they got a lot of press on it. So, I mean, I give them credit for that the industry would love it, right? Because you're, you're doubling engagement ring sales and, you know, sure. that's really the backbone of, uh, of our industry. You know, Tiffany's always in a lot of ways been this way, but I think particularly since LVMH took over, they've, they've, they're doing a lot of interesting things. They did that April Fool's joke where they said, we're going to do Tiffany yellow instead of Tiffany blue. <laughs> it was clever and it got a lot of traction. It calls attention to your kind of signature color. So that was interesting. And they, one of the things that's, you know, it's a little bittersweet, certainly for somebody who works in journalism, is that they 
for years had this ad on A3 of the New York Times, a Tiffany ad, and now they're not doing it anymore. You know, this has been going on for over a century. You know, it's something that you would always tend to notice because you would open the newspaper and there it is. But of course, while people may read newspapers, they don't necessarily read them in print form anymore. So it obviously doesn't have the power that it used to, but it's kind of bittersweet because it is, it was something of a trademark of Tiffany and something of a trademark of New York Times. And it was kind of a symbiosis because, you know, they're both kind of New York institutions. So they kind of work together. So, you know, I think it's an interesting idea. Again, I think a lot of people have done it, but Tiffany is such a high profile name that the fact that they're doing it obviously gets a lot more attention. Well, the rings are, are beautiful. I actually wonder how many women will buy them. And I saw the announcement about the New York Times and the cessation of that you know, century-old ad spot. Did Tiffany, what did they say? How did they frame this decision? Did they kind of just acknowledge that print was dead or dying? I mean, was that how they framed it? I asked them for a comment. They didn't give me a comment. You know, a lot of people on Twitter have noticed it. So mm. I guess they didn't give a formal reason for it. But I'm sure, as you can imagine, it's because less people look at a print hard copy. I mean, what's interesting to me is that like, okay, the kind of standard female engagement ring involves a diamond kind of sticking out, kind of like announcing its presence. And this is about the diamond kind of being part of the ring. And I thought that was interesting. It's the diamond is more part of the piece rather than something that kind of grows out of the piece. And, uh, you know, I don't know necessarily the thinking behind that, but it did strike me as kind of a interesting choice. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. It, it does make sense. I mean, I think some people prefer a bezel or a flush set ring just for like comfort and ergonomics sake. You know, you're constantly knocking that ring. Uh, yeah, it does seem a little more masculine to have something that's a little more subtle, even though we're talking diamonds, so subtle is relative. You know, I, I feel like over the 20 years, I just very much dated myself that I've been writing about jewelry. I've written that men's jewelry story like five times. Like, oh, people are really excited about men's jewelry. Um, but this time does feel, or now these days do feel a little different. Partly, I think about people in my family, like my partner's niece, and she's probably 14 or so. And she is obsessed with Harry Styles, obsessed. And, you know, Harry Styles is so handsome and so attractive and so. No, I, I barely know. Who, I've heard the name. Who is he? Is a singer or? A... He's a singer. Well, I really feel old now. I feel really. old too, because I can't even remember the name of One Direction or, you know, he's now a solo act and he's super handsome and he was on the Grammys and he likes to wear like boas around his neck and all kinds of jewelry and he is not afraid and, and the jewelry isn't even like masculine jewelry it's very feminine but there's no question that he's a a masculine figure and so I think when a generation grows up besotted with a figure like Harry Styles or the Jonas Brothers who've quite blatantly been sporting pearl necklaces you know at concerts and things when a generation grows up with those idols, I mean, there's no doubt that you'll look at men wearing jewelry differently than our generation looks at men wearing jewelry. It does feel like a different moment, you know? Yeah. And I think perhaps the, the challenge is to take, okay, if the Jonas Brothers are wearing pearl necklaces, how do you get the average man on the street to wear a pearl necklace? I guess really great marketing, great placements. I mean, I think the pearl industry is probably, you know, doing a dance. They should be. All right. So tell us, 
what's the deal with Burma slash Myanmar? We don't have too much time left. So what is happening with sanctions and what do jewelers need to know? That's a, I mean, that's obviously a really serious situation. You know, for a long time, Burmese rubies were banned in the United States. And then with the end of military rule or the partial end of military rule, you know, the democratization of the country that had been changed. This year, there was a military coup, and now we're just seeing a lot of sanctions against Burmese products, Burmese jade, Burmese rubies, Burmese pearls. And I think even actually a lot of people in Washington will now even acknowledge it that, you know, that the original sanctions weren't perhaps as effective at hurting the military, but it, it you know, it hurt the kind of small artisanal diggers who depend on uh, Burmese rubies and you know, whose livelihood is, is based on uh, digging up these things. You know, that's the challenge they have now, again, because the worse it gets over there, and it's, it's, it's apparently very bad over there. You know, there's been a lot of deaths and, and you know, shooting protesters and, and things like that. You know, the more sanctions there's going to be, and eventually it's very difficult to legally import a Burmese ruby into the United States. Obviously, one of the problems here is most Burmese rubies, I mean, we always talk about the kind of big, nice, beautiful Burmese rubies, but most of the things coming out of the ground are these kind of small things, and those those are extremely hard to track. So that's a big challenge. And, you know, and, and Jade is also a huge, huge moneymaker, but a lot of that goes to China. But, you know, I, I think these laws are in the books, just as there's laws against uh, Merengue diamonds. And the question is, how do they want them enforced? You know, it, it's really all about enforcement. And, you know, there's laws against Congo gold, there's laws against Merengue diamonds. And yet, usually when you import a diamond or import gold, it, it's usually pretty free. And the, the question is, you know, how are, how are they going to handle it? How are they going to handle things that are in people's inventory already? So there's there's a lot of big questions right now. But clearly, if you deal with rubies, you have to be careful, especially, I mean, one of the big problems is that Myanmar or Burma doesn't import directly. A lot of it goes through Thailand. So you kind of lose the provenance in that way. So it's going to be a big challenge for the industry, but it's a serious issue. And it's obviously extremely unfortunate situation over there. And it's going to hurt the colored gemstone industry. Yeah. And I certainly need to dive deeper into this. I mean, I think the thing I wonder is, A, Burmese goods, at least on the ruby and sapphire end, have, especially the ruby end, have always been so expensive or have grown more and more expensive that they're prohibitive. At least when you talk about the really sizable, memorable, beautiful red stones. I think about how rare those are anyway. But, you know, to your point about the bulk of things coming out of the ground in Burma, I don't know to what level those goods are are still important to the marketplace. Because I don't I don't know. Does China end up implementing sanctions against Burma? I, I doubt it. No, from what I understand, it's not a big issue there right now. I, you know, I would just say that Obviously, I mean, the things that we talk about, about better sourcing, you know, tracing sourcing and also due diligence as far as, you know, your suppliers and who your supplier suppliers are, you know, that stuff is going to be a lot more important. If just one person prosecuted for importing a Burmese ruby or for a Merengue diamond or for Congo gold, you know, all you have to do is just get one person and the trade will, will freak, will flip out. Yeah. Well, you know, all the conversations we've had and have gone into overdrive about responsible sourcing all really say the same thing. And, and those questions that you need to start asking will help you 
I think a lot of people are already kind of aware that they need to be more vigilant about where they get their goods and be more demanding of information and documentation and evidence-based claims. You know, that's good, not only to make sure you're not selling blood rubies, but also to make sure that you're selling things that, you know, help people on the planet along the way. There's just so much more emphasis on this kind of origin story and this provenance that I think a lot of people are already there or already quite comfortable with sort of that obligation that they have to be more demanding as consumers. You know, as a buyer, you do get to ask questions and the suppliers should be happier asking questions because it means you're interested in, you know, in some way invested in that good. So it's always the future, right? Yeah. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. 